0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at PopPantheonPod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Buy merch in our store at PopPantheonPod.com. And of course, join our Patreon, PopPantheon All Access, where we offer at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. Also, we are completely compiling Pantheon reassessment calls from you guys. At some point in the coming weeks, Russ and I are going to go through all of the Pantheon rankings from the last year, and we want to hear from you about what we got wrong. Normally, I actually don't want to hear what you guys think I got wrong, but this time I would like to. So if you are upset about where your fave ended up in the Pop Pantheon, and you have a good argument as for why, send us voice notes or written emails to poppantheonpod at gmail.com, and we will potentially be addressing them on that episode. Lastly, my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous. Gorgeous is having its last installment of the year on December 16th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Tickets for that will be available in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so this is a big series for us. We are launching the first of a three-part series today on the legendary Miss Mariah Carey. This series will be broken up as follows. The first episode will chronicle her early life through the release of her seminal fourth album, 1995's Daydream. We will pick up next Thursday with her 1997 album Butterfly through the disaster that is Glitter and Charm Bracelet from 2002, and then the third episode will pick up with her comeback album from 2005, The Emancipation of Mimi through The Present Day, and we will, of course, rank her in the pop pantheon. I also want to point out that we will be doing a Patreon episode, which will come out on Monday, that is chronicling Mariah's rise to the Queen of Christmas. We'll be talking about All I Want for Christmas is You, we'll be talking about her position in the pantheon of holiday classics, and all the rest of Mariah's Christmas-related accoutrement will be available in an episode dropping on Patreon this Monday. So without further ado, here is the first installment of our Mariah Carey (laughs) three-parter. The upper rungs of the pop pantheon are littered with some great singers whose voices have rocked our cores and conjured the divine. Aretha, Whitney, and Beyonce, just to name a few. It's also home to some legendary songwriters whose words are carved into our psyches and have defined cultural idioms for generations. Dylan, John and Paul, Stevie Wonder, Taylor, etc. And of course, it's got hitmakers, icons who have racked up mind-boggling numbers of smashes, reconstituting entire chapters of the American songbook. Michael, Madonna, Rihanna, and so on. But Mariah Carey is. A unique butterfly in the pantheon. A diva whose celestial five octave range seems to explode from her like an atom bomb. A prolific songwriter who penned almost all of her veritable cornucopia of classic now pop standards. And maybe most importantly of all, the hit maker to end them all. The performer of the most number one hits of any solo artist in the history of recorded music. We could get into all the other ways Mariah shaped pop history. How she popularized melismatic vocalizing for generations. Her innovative and prescient melding of hip-hop pop In R&B, her gravity-defying comeback in the mid-2000s, and of course, her coronation as queen of mankind's most cherished and festive holiday. And we most certainly will over the course of the next three episodes. But in some ways, when it comes to the great MC, the stats don't lie. If pop music can be defined by writing and performing hit records, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's done the genre prouder than Mariah Carey. Mariah was born in Huntington, New York in 1969 to a vocal coach and former opera singer Patricia and an engineer Alfred Carey. Patricia's parents, themselves Irish immigrants, disowned her for marrying Mariah's father because he was Black and Venezuelan. Roy and Patricia divorced when Mariah was only three, and Mariah's mixed-race identity was a source of dissonance throughout most of her childhood, fostering a sense of outsiderness, which, at a young age, she began to channel into poetry. Patricia also helped hone Mariah's considerable singing voice, and by the time she was a teenager, Mariah found work as a demo singer on Long Island. While working in recording studios, she met a songwriter and producer, Ben Margulies, and wrote four songs with him which she ultimately ultimately compiled into a demo tape. At 19, Mariah moved to New York City, where she started performing backup vocals for the freestyle singer Brenda K. Starr. Recognizing her extraordinary vocal abilities, as well as her ambition, Starr took Mariah under her wing and, one night at a party to which Starr had brought Mariah as a guest, Mariah had a chance meeting with Columbia Records executive Tommy Matola, slipping him her demo. Tommy listened to it on his ride home and was so taken with Mariah's voice that he asked the driver to turn around so he could find her. she had already left the party, but Tommy tracked Mariah down and offered her a record deal. Columbia was lacking a female superstar to rival Arista's Whitney Houston or Cyrus Madonna, and Tommy thought Mariah could fill the void. He sent her into the studio with a series of hand-picked then-hot-pot producers, who helped rework the demo songs and compose new material with Mariah. One of the songs Mariah initially wrote in high school, the gospel soul roof raiser Vision of Love, was selected as her first single. Vision, a showcase eventually dubbed the Magna Carta of Melisma by the New Yorker's Sasha Frere Jones, immediately established Mariah as a powerhouse client climbing to number one on the Hot 100, selling 1 million copies and winning a Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. Columbia poured a reported $1 million into promoting Mariah's self-titled debut, released in 1990. The push paid off. Mariah Carey became one of the best-selling albums of 1991, moving 15 million copies to date and all four of its singles, Vision, the melodramatic torch song, I Don't Wanna Cry, the New Jack Swing banger Someday, and the rousing power ballad, Love Takes Time, went number one. Mariah's meteoric success is the stuff of pop legend, one of the most auspicious arrivals in history. But for Mariah herself, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Early in her career, Matola had become not only Mariah's mentor and label boss, but at 20 years her senior, also her husband. He began to exert increasingly oppressive levels of control over her music, image, and personal life, eventually marrying her and building her a sprawling mansion in Bedford, New York that Mariah later dubbed Sing-Sing, an allusion to how she'd felt imprisoned there by Matola. All of this, along with Mariah's own ruthless work ethic, Meant that before she'd even finished rolling out singles from her debut, she was back in the studio with a new team of writers and producers that included members of CNC Music Factory to work on her second album, 1991's Emotions. The title track, an overt homage to the disco classic Best of My Love by The Emotions, shot to number one, making Mariah the first person in history to have her first five singles reach the peak of the Hot 100. The album, which Mariah had wrested some creative control over from the Sven Matola, found her veering slightly away from the broad adult contemporary vibes of her debut and towards more overt black pop sounds like House and Disco. It produced two more top five hits, Can't Let Go and Make It Happen, and sold an impressive 4 million copies but failed to match the runaway success of Mariah's debut. Meanwhile, critics were openly wondering why Mariah wasn't touring to support her work, suggesting she was merely a blunt studio artist who possessed chops, sure, but no soul. Seeking to silence them, Mariah recorded a legendary installment of MTV's Unplugged, performing her hits and releasing a cover of the Jackson 5's I'll Be There as a single. The EP sold 8 million copies worldwide, I'll Be There became Mariah's sixth number one song. Unhappy with the performance of emotions and against Mariah's own artistic impulses, however, Matola insisted that Mariah pivot back towards more anodyne-centrist pop on her third album, 1993's Music Box, a record composed mainly of ballads co-written and co-produced by Walter Afanasiev, who became one of Mariah's most prolific collaborators. The lead single, the shimmering hip-hop-influenced outlier Dream Lover, produced by Mary J. Blige collaborator Dave Hall, was the first true indication of Mariah's ambition to engage with the then ascendant genre in her work. The track spent eight weeks at number one, as did Music Box, which to date has sold a staggering 28 million copies worldwide. And while no other songs gestured so directly at Mariah's interest in contemporary black music, Music Box produced two more top five hits, the Babyface produced cover of Bad Fingers Without You, and Mariah's signature song of the era, the schlocky adult contemporary ballad Hero, which spent four weeks at number one.
1: And then a hero comes along with the strength to
0: In the fall of 1994, Mariah followed up Music Box with Merry Christmas, an ode to the holiday featuring a mix of classic Christmas songs and three originals written in collaboration with Afanasiev. Though the decision to release a holiday album came as a surprise at the time when Christmas music was left mainly to over the hill pop stars, the album and its lead single, All I Want For Christmas Is You, have gone on to become holiday standards. Merry Christmas is the best selling Christmas album by a woman of all time, trailing only Elvis and Michael Buble, and All I Want For Christmas Is You is the first Christmas song to receive a diamond certification selling 10 million copies. Hungry for more creative control and particularly to engage more actively with the music she personally loved, Mariah fought tooth and nail for more of a say in the sound of her fourth album, 1995's Daydream. Driven by her vision, the music here swerved more directly towards R&B and hip-hop, which by the mid-90s were on the brink of fully crossing over into mainstream pop. This caused massive strife with Columbia and severe tension with Matola, who openly hated rap music and from whom she was by then largely estranged. While Daydream contained some of her signature AC ballads, much of the album's track listing could of Mariah's prescient melding of her signature glistening pop, with production flourishes and rhythmic singing that brought her directly in conversation with contemporary Black musical styles. Collaborators like Jermaine Dupri, then known for his work with rappers like Crisscross Cross and DeBrat and R&B stars like Xscape, brought a bounce to the drum programming and subtle coup to Mariah's vocals on the number one smash, Always Be My Baby. Collaborations with R&B superstars like Boys to Men on the 16-week chart topper One Sweet Day and Babyface on fan favorite Melt Away allowed Mariah to lean directly into soul music as she'd never done done before. But nothing changed Mariah's career and the course of pop music more than lead single Fantasy. Originally a shimmering mid-tempo disco pop number with some hip-hop overlays courtesy of Dave Hall and a brilliant sample of the Tom Club's Genius of Love, the remix by Pup Daddy featuring Wu-Tang Clan's Old Dirty Bastard stripped the original for parts and officially established Mariah in the context of hip-hop culture. The strain between Mariah and Tommy reached its apex over the release of this remix, but Mariah, seeing the genre's future at the center of popular culture, eventually one out. The fantasy remix went on to top the charts for eight weeks, is widely considered one of the definitive singles of the 1990s, and forever altered the sound of pop, which, in the wake of the song's success, officially once and for all embraced hip hop as a core part of its DNA. <laughs> With more than 8 million in sales in the US and 20 million worldwide to date, Daydream became Mariah's best selling album and was the first time she was lauded by critics for her innovation. But as it turns out, Mariah was only just at the starting line. Here to discuss Mariah Carey's early life and career is assistant professor of race and media at the New School, Dr. Brittany L. Proctor. Uh Okay, so I am here with Assistant Professor of Race and Media at the New School, Dr. Brittany L. Proctor. Dr. Proctor, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here and to be having this conversation with you about a pretty endlessly fascinating, rich topic in the history of popular music, Miss Mariah Carey. I guess I'll start with a big question, but I don't want you to feel obligated to answer this in toto. But Mariah Carey is notable for so many reasons in pop history, but I think one of the most notable of them all is her omnipresence and longevity. She's a pop star that has defied a lot of gravity in terms of being able to stay relevant, stay in the conversation, stay part of the fabric of popular culture for 30 plus years at this point. I wonder if there's things about her. You don't have to name everything because we could probably talk about 20 different topics in this regard. But are there specific aspects of her as an artist, as a figure that you feel have been the generative force behind that omnipresence and longevity? What jumps out to you as the things that are integral to Mariah Carey that have allowed her to stay such a force in our pop cultural lives.
2: Yeah, I think her dedication to her craft is really what has allowed her to have such a long career. Even in what some may call the downs of her career, she's still been able to hone her craft in so many ways. And I think that might say a lot about the multiple influences that have had a profound impact on her at a young age taking from artists like Stevie Wonder, who similarly has had such a long arc of a career and has made so many different forms of popular music, has made songs for film, made albums that are maybe more tied thematically to a singular theme. And I think that an influence like CB Wonder is kind of paralleling some of her ability to just know what it means to not only take your craft seriously, but be open and willing to change across time, not heel digging and doubling down and feeling like this is who I am as an artist and I have to recreate this wheel, but being open to shape-shifting in terms of one's artistry. I think also her relationship to jazz singers and figures has allowed her to have such a long career. She writes about in her autobiography how jazz musicians like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday had such a kind of musical foundation that imparted upon her the kind of musical foundation that she would want to have across genres right Mm. that she could use her voice in ways that were so nuanced and so tied to forms of modulation and improvisation that really lend themselves to creating all different kinds of music also she's just so ambitious yes such a hard (laughs) worker so that's part of it Those are some of the ways we can think about her longevity across her career.
0: Yeah. Ambitious is so important. I also think she's incredibly fun and entertaining on top of all of those things. I think her ability to be both a virtuoso as a singer, as a songwriter, as a producer, as you mentioned, so innovative. I mean, somebody that single-handedly in some ways changed the sound face texture of popular music through her own evolution as an artist and weirdly also tied to her own personal evolution. Like that's one of the most interesting things I think about the era we're specifically going to be talking about today is the way in which Mariah coming into her own self and her independence and her autonomy and her agency shifted the face of popular culture because the more Mariah was able to be herself, express herself, express her intuitive understanding of where pop music and culture was going in terms of embracing particularly hip hop culture into more mainstream pop, both as a production aesthetic, as a singing style. Those were maybe some of the most critical innovations of pop over the last 30 years, I would say. But I also think she's equally adept at being a celebrity. She is one of the best celebrities that we've ever had. She is so good at entertaining both in her work and then just existing in the world. Mm-hmm. The entire Mariah Carey persona, the way that we get to experience her as a camp figure in some ways, I think has also been incredibly important, obviously, in terms of her Queen of Christmas title that's become such an enduring legacy. And the way that she sort of leaned into the divaness. I mean, she's somebody that stands in the tradition of the diva. She's the daughter of an opera singer. She is a part of a generation of artists that were seen and often labeled as divas. Mm-hmm. And the way that she has both embodied that without a wink and then embodied that with a wink, I think is an incredibly important part of her legacy. And then I think the only last thing I would add is just the hits are there. I mean, this is somebody that defied so many of the rules of pop music by coming up with hits. And that's really the currency of the pop star, I think, even as things have ebbed and flowed and trends come and go and whatever the ability to generate hit music. And I think the fact that she is a songwriter and she is a producer and she's able to do that on her own has really been, I think, the linchpin in why Mariah Carey transcends And this isn't to knock people that can't do this, because I think there's value to all approaches to being a pop star. But the fact that at the end of the day, Mariah Carey can kind of sit down and write a hit song by herself has been such an incredibly integral part of every facet of her career, which has taken so many twists and turns, but begins with her first hit and all the way through the present day. That skill, that ability, she's one of the greatest singer songwriters in American history. And I think that that has been such an important part of her longevity and her place in pop history.
2: I think that's, yeah, very important to note because when you think about the rise of the pop star, not many folk are willing to admit or say that I wanted to be on the radio. I lived for the radio. Mm. I was very mindful around making music that could transcend. Like I wanted to transcend. I wanted to be in everyone's homes. Like I wanted to create a sound that was very true to my musical traditions that I came up and through, but also that could transcend that and be a place where across the globe could like identify with.
0: Totally. I was reading something prepping for this that was noting that one of the primary differences between her and like a Whitney or even an Aretha or a lot of people that she's often lumped in with in terms of her vocal prowess is that Mariah actually didn't grow up in the church. She didn't actually grow up singing gospel music like a lot of aspiring divas did. Like obviously Whitney is a product of the church, Aretha is a product of the church, but Mariah was a product of the church of pop radio. She of course eventually discovered gospel music and gospel was an incredibly important part, especially of the music that we're going to be discussing today. And I do think she's a pretty religious woman, mm-hmm. but she grew up as a pop lover, a pop scientist. She's always very proudly embraced her mass appeal, which I think has been, as you were just pointing out, a very important key to understanding Mariah as a figure. Mariah is an unapologetic mass appeal artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also been part of the key to her success. She doesn't really have shame around that. And at the same time... She's been innovative and she has pushed boundaries and she has defied expectations of the moment to find new paths forward for pop music. But it's always been in the container of somebody that's very comfortable in the center. And I think that has also been a key to her long-term success and her appeal across so many demographics. And she really approaches music in that way proudly. That kind of makes her the ultimate kind of poptimist artist. She's somebody that very happily sits As a centrist pop star, so many of these hits I think bear that out. They are just some of the most purely enjoyable, pure pop songs that have ever been written. And I can't wait to get into all of them (laughs) with you. So let's rewind and talk a little bit about Mariah's early life. First of all, I just want to say, I'm sure you're going to be referencing this a lot. I'm going to reference this a lot. Her autobiography from a few years ago, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, is a truly delightful read. It is so voicey. It is so much fun. It's so clearly coming from her. It's just a delight. So go read that, but... What I want to ask you is what are the important parts of Mariah's early life to understanding who she is as an artist and musician and pop star in your mind?
2: So Mariah is born in Huntington, New York. She grows up in Long Island, New York. So in Suffolk County, I think that's very important to the kind of lane that she wanted to pursue, Mm. which is intimately related to race. So she's a biracial Black woman born to an Irish mother and a Black Venezuelan father. And I think that kind of in-betweenness and by way of her autobiography, she's really clear about this, how that in-betweenness was not something that she was using to make herself feel distinct from others, but in fact was an imposition Mm. and was like weaponized against her, especially by like Mm. white folk in Long Island, New York. It was kind of this, you're different from us, but we're not quite sure why. And then when your father shows up to things, then we know why. And then that's the way we can locate you and stop being friends with you or make your life a living hell. I mean, Mariah is only born two years after the Loving Virginia decision is made where interracial marriage is no longer illegal in the United States of America. Right. And so her parents' consciousness around just how they had to live and with their two children, Mariah has two older siblings, just the way they had to navigate a pre-Loving v Virginia world, which not that things changed so drastically, but she's talked a lot about feeling like she's always had to stand alone, that you were born to exist but stand alone and on the outside or the periphery of all of these kind of social communities.
1: It's hard to explain Inherently it's just always been strange Neither here nor there and always somewhat out a place everywhere. And even
2: in the context of her family, she feels like a stranger because she knows she has this very jovial spirit mm. and family life is very tumultuous. Her siblings don't really have the same enthusiasm around lightness and fun and play that she does. They're older than her. That fractures the kind of relationship that they might have had early on. But also in thinking about her relationship with her mother and she feels early on deeply seen by her mother because her mother sees her as a musician, as a vocalist. Right. Because of her ability to hear things and pick them up and to mimic them vocally.
0: Right, because her mother is an opera singer.
2: Yeah, she's a Juilliard-trained opera singer. And so she listened to her mother doing vocal exercises at home and doing repetition of scales and really picked up on that Mm. and have a relationship with her mother by way of her mother's training and by way of just being able to be with her mother in song in ways that they weren't necessarily able to share in the kind of typical mother-daughter relationship.
1: Mm.
2: She gets exposed a lot to live music by way of her mother and her mother's friends who were musicians would come by and would play and she would always be around live music. So the kind of love of music and musicianship is something that both Mariah and her mother get to share early on in her life. And the kind of love, not only of musicianship by way of making music, but the love of the intricate details of the craft and the love of the process, which unfortunately, as Mariah gets older, her mother begins to see her gravitate towards that and to see her skill get developed over time. And then her mother begins to treat her like competition.
0: So Mm, (laughs) yeah, they had a complex relationship. Yeah. And a couple of the more interesting details I thought from the memoir were that, A, as you mentioned, Mariah is mixed race and her father, Roy, is both African-American and has Afro-Venezuelan lineage. And the mother, Patricia's family, essentially disowns her for marrying this man. So right. this racial tension is not just around her in like the generally racist environs of Long Island, right. but also literally from within her own family. There's this mm-hmm. racism that really defines a lot of her like, struggle with her own identity. And then the other thing on a more lighthearted note that's sort of funny when you think about Mar- Mariah the Grand Dame glamour diva is that she often describes her mom as a hippie eccentric who's a little bit <laughs> crunchy it sounded like to me yeah
2: I think that fuels the complicatedness around the relationship because of that kind of disposition that hippie disposition of like ah oh, carefree ah oh, whatever yeah. I would wake up in the morning and my mother wouldn't do anything to my hair and I felt also antagonized and ostracized in that way because I don't feel looked after in the way that I probably should as this biracial kid that has this different textured hair all around my head mm.
3: and it's
2: not that necessarily my mother doesn't care about me, but she is not very tapped into what I need as this biracial child and mm. how she should be tending to me around my hair.
0: Yeah, that was so interesting. And then also, her father was part of her life, but searching for that part of her identity, she really wanted that relationship with the father, and he was a bit of a difficult man for her to connect to, as the autobiography makes it sound
3: like to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and she gets to spend some extended time with her father's side of the family, and those are some of the ways she gets to experience kinship in more intimate ways Mm. but it's not sustained over time just because she doesn't live with her father she lives primarily with her mother and they're moving a lot and over time the frequency of which she gets to see her father changes dramatically so Yeah, young Mariah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Like, I just
2: want to give her a hug. (laughs) I know,
0: me too. Honestly, she really speaks a lot very movingly in the early part of the story about just how alone and adrift she felt in that period of her life. It's really sad. There's a heartbreaking element to her early childhood and her lack of identity. That's so interesting because her ability to code switch, to walk lines between different communities and ethnicities becomes such an asset to her, I think, in her work. Her ability to be kind of like a cultural omnivore is such an important part of Mariah's artistry, but you can see how painful that was for her as a child. And the story you were illustrating earlier about her mother and not knowing how to care properly for her hair speaks to the complexities of that dynamic. Not knowing where you belong or feeling even different from your own mother in that very core way of identity is such a fascinating element to who she is as a person. I'm wondering outside of her mother being an opera singer, which obviously had a massive impact on her and helped her discover her passion for singing, either from the book or just. From your own knowledge of the time, who do you think are the artists that Mariah is looking up to? Are there specific artists in her childhood that feel like important early influences for us to understand that she's looking at and going, hmm? Yeah,
2: I think many Ripperton, which she cites as an early influence just because of her vocal range and having the access to her whistle register. She's noted that she would sing along to Ripperton's Loving You and mimic her vocal performance. I noted earlier, Stevie Wonder, that's her favorite artist of all time, hands down. Leontine Price, who was the first Black woman prima donna at the Metropolitan Opera, is a big influence to her Cindy Mizelle, she terms the background vocalist, who sung background for Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross, the Rolling Stones, really looked out for Mariah early on and when she was doing session work, mentored Mariah Carey, told her, you need to call me <laughs> 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 and took her under her wing and made sure that she had the things that she need when she was barely scraping by and busting her butt to have money for studio time to record parts of her demos mm. that would become a self titled album. Those are some folk that I think off the bat that she's influenced by and looks to artistically.
0: Yeah. As much as she's a singer, she's a songwriter. Do you know how she sort of unpacks or discovers the fact that she's able to write music? She's
2: drawn to the language arts in school and it's a subject that she gravitates towards. She's always journaling and writing. Mm -hmm. She spends a lot of time in isolation just writing and Those are some of the earlier moments where she's realizing that she has the ability to write prose, even if not at the level of lyric yet, but able to write poetry or to communicate her feelings through the written word Right, ends up becoming something that's so important to her by the time she's a teenager, she can like pull songs out of the air, right? Like have a half of a lyric and then a melody will just come to her. And then before she knows it, she has Mm. the first half to a song. So I think it's just a natural progression of just being alone a lot, being deeply intuitive and having this interior life where she's journaling and writing. The progression just happens. And then by the time she's 14 or 15, she's writing songs and recording background vocals and jingles for local businesses.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: So quite early, (laughs) (laughs) on she's able to find that hey not only am I a talented singer but I can also write songs I can write my own records
0: Does she have a vision for herself as a pop star? Is that ambition there from right in this early teenage period to your understanding?
2: Her self-belief is tremendous. Yes. Even in moments when folk are like really trying to dig at her and make her feel small and tell her she'll never be anything and take opportunities away from her and bully her, she has a tremendous amount of self- belief that she's had at such a young age. Yes. She may have not known exactly how her career was going to materialize, but she knew that she was going to have a career. She knew she was going to be a recording artist. She knew that she was going to write and perform her own songs. And I think as a young Black biracial girl, to have that kind of self-belief in the late 1970s, and the early 1980s, is just so remarkable. And I just... Gosh, I mean, I think that's maybe the one thing that gets talked less about is just how her tremendous amount of self-belief is what actually got her to that point where it's like, I'm going to have a music career. Period. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be on the radio. My music is going to transcend genre. Mm. And that self-belief is just so taken for granted, but it's just also so integral to her career and just her singularity as an artist. It's one thing to know you're talented and can make music. It's another thing to believe in yourself as
0: an artist. It's so interesting that you bring that up because it's also a motif that informs a lot of her early work. Actually, a lot of her early work either explicitly speaks about this or belies that self-belief. I mean, everything from the trust in God of a vision of love to self-mythologizing of make it happen. There are so many elements to especially the period of music that you and I are going to be dissecting in a minute here that revolve around that self-belief. It's actually an artistic milieu Mm -hmm. that she leans into. It's not just something that sort of operates beneath the surface as a generative force for her career. It's actually the subject of her art and I think that that's a really interesting thing to highlight about this that self-belief seems like it got her through the difficulties of her childhood she was able to hold on to this dream as a life preserver Mm -hmm. in a time that she was really in need of one so I think that's a very important thing to highlight so you were mentioning this briefly but let's get into this in more detail you said Mariah starts to become like a background singer and starts to make demos how does her professional singing career begin
2: yeah so she describes the film that she ends up doing jingles for early on as these quote-unquote Wayne's World type of guys. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious.
0: (laughs) She's never not got a zinger. It's hilarious. (laughs) She could have been a stand-up in a different way.
2: Yeah, she ends up doing more background work. She meets a Cindy Mazel. She's just becoming more and more a part of the industry, attends more industry-related parties and events. With some of the money, she's able to acquire through working ridiculous hours in New York City. Mm-hmm. She's able to spend her time in the studio and record some of her early demo work, produce a couple demo tapes that are very rare commodities for her that she carries with her. Mm.
0: Well, she's a background singer first for this woman, Brenda Starr, right?
2: Brenda Starr, yes. Another mentor type figure that she looks up to and deeply respects vocally. Mm. And also is one of the types that doesn't feel threatened by Mariah's virtuosity and capacity, but is very encouraging of her and mm. also takes her under her wing and is very insistent that she keeps at it, which I think is not to say uncommon at the time, but I do think the kind of scarcity mentality of pop music is unfortunately something that young artists, particularly young artists that are not white, young artists that are women, mm. they have to navigate this kind of scarcity mentality and often run up against that and And folks sometimes aren't the most collaborative or worried about I need my versus thinking about this as more of a communal effort of which you got my back, I got yours. We can do this together and pursue this Mm. same love of song and artistry together. It doesn't have to be this Hunger Games type situation, but (laughs) we can engage in modes of mutual aid and look out for each other and be there for each other and support each other, which I think also makes all the difference in the trajectory of her career, that people are looking out for her and that people are extending generosity to her in a music industry landscape that sometimes can be rare.
0: Yeah, for sure. And also in this period where she's singing back up for Brenda Starr, she moves to New York City. And of course, as she has famously mythologized about herself over and over again, she did complete 500 hours of beauty school.
2: Yes, she did. This
0: is a very important part of Mariah's mythology that she <laughs> loves is. to state over and over again in the last 35 years of her career. I want to make sure that the lambs don't come for us for not <laughs> mentioning Mariah's beauty school training. And also during her demo work Days she starts working in particular with this man, Ben Margulies, who ends up being like a co-writer for her. And actually Vision of Love is a song on one of her original demos that she co-writes with him, right?
2: Yes. The beautiful thing about also Mariah Carey's career, even though the self-titled album ends up being a kind of glossed up version of the demos, a lot of her demo work gets to be a part of her self-titled album. Her efforts in doing demo work doesn't go in vain. And as you note, Vision of Love is a demo track that ends up appearing on the self-titled album. And it's kind of remarkable, even though Tommy Mottola and execs at Columbia are trying to generalize and universalize the sound of the demo and make it, I guess the word you could use is accessible to listeners. Yes. The heart of it is still so much there that This gets me back to the self-belief the songs that you're writing and recording you're fully committed to them it's not a half of something that ends up becoming something else Mm -hmm. the actual heart and structure is so much there that for your debut album it's basically just a reimagination of your demo record which is so deeply impressive so deeply tied to this idea of (laughs) self-belief
0: It's also something that differentiates her from the generation of divas that she's often lumped in with. I mean, at this moment, we're now talking about the mid to late 80s. Whitney Houston is obviously one of the biggest stars on the planet and is, I'd say, the number one artist that Mariah is most often compared to. And this is one of the primary differentiating factors between the two of them. And again, this is not to knock Whitney Houston in any way, the greatest vocalist perhaps of all time, but Whitney and Celine and Tony Braxton and a lot of these other artists who are in this generation of female pop divas are not songwriters, and they're not writing their own material. That's not really what they're known for. Mariah Carey, first and foremost, I think considers herself a singer-songwriter even more so than she does an actual singer. So that is something that really sets her apart, I think, and also becomes a bit of a struggle for her to be recognized, both within her marriage and in the music industry, but also in the fan community. I think that there's been a 35-year project. If I can, I will find this YouTube compilation where Mariah is constantly having to tell everybody I'm a Songwriter, I'm a songwriter. (laughs) People didn't even realize that I
1: wrote songs, and some of them still don't. I write my own songs. I produce my own records. How many songs do I have to write until I at least get that credited? Most people didn't realize I write my own songs. To this day, a lot of people don't. I was I'm constantly writing. I I can write pop songs. I was just a singer and a writer. I sort of felt the desire to want to write and to want to be. A singer-songwriter. I hope to bring it back to real singer-songwriter category. I just thought of myself as, you know, a singer-songwriter. As a songwriter. As a songwriter. She still,
0: to this day, feels like she's compelled to say it, which is both comical because Mariah makes things comedy and she's very funny, but there's also something sort of disturbing about the fact that that is something that people aren't willing to believe about her, that the casual listener, for racist reasons, for misogynistic reasons, for raucous reasons, is not willing to accept the fact that not only is Mariah Carey known for this incredible five octave voice and for all of her hits, but she is the writer of these hits. She's the creator of these hits from the beginning. It wasn't something she grew into. It wasn't something she developed under the tutelage of other hit makers. She literally just wrote a lot of these songs. And I think it's both like a triumphant element of her backstory and also a bit of a tragic one that she still feels the need to have to explain that to people. All of these hits and years later is an integral part of her story that should be stated from the beginning. And I'm glad that we've highlighted that here. The last thing I want to ask before we talk about her meeting with Tommy Matola is the voice. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have yet to describe the voice. The voice is obviously a generational instrument. And you were talking earlier about the way that Brenda Starr and part of the reason she was such a great mentor to Mariah was because she wasn't threatened by the voice. Mm -hmm. What's the voice like? What's the voice giving? Can you describe it a
2: little (laughs) bit to us? Yeah, I think Mariah Carey's voice to me is a mosaic in that it's able to feature so many different elements. She knows her voice very well, she knows what her voice can and cannot do, which I think folk take that for granted when it comes to a singer or vocalist. She doesn't only have just tremendous vocal range or her whistle register, but she's able to harness the nuances of her voice, which goes back to listening to jazz musicians, being exposed to jazz vocalists like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald early on, also hanging with her mother's musician friends. But I think her vocal phrasing is just unmatched. I guess we'll talk about melisma, but her voice is just virtuosic, not just by way of capacity and range, but by the kind of subtleties and nuances that she's able to harness, especially in the context of pop music aesthetics, which I think is so special.
0: It's very flexible. She has this five octave range, and I think this is going to come into play when we start talking about the early hits. She's able to jump between registers within the course of like a single line or lyric. It's almost like watching a gymnast or an acrobat. It's incredible the way that she can create variation in her voice from line to Line, not just within verse or song to song on an album, but she's able to flex this muscle in an incredibly elastic way that is kind of unmatched, I think, in modern pop history. Like, not just the range, the range, too, of course, we can never not note the five octaves, but that flexibility that she has with it, I think, is also a real trademark of her early music, especially. Absolutely. So, can you talk a little bit about how she comes to meet Tommy Mottola and how she gets her record deal? I think that's a very important part of the Mariah lore.
2: So She's at an industry party in 1988. She's with a friend, Matola says, ask the friend who's that girl? She's like, who me? Because she's just so used to (laughs) flying under the radar and why me? Like, you must be talking to somebody else. (laughs) But he ends up taking her demo for her, which he's kind of pissed about because she only has so many of these cassette tapes. (laughs) But he's kind of blown away with what he hears and then Laura is that he spends the next two weeks trying to find her Mm -hmm. because right away he sees the singularity of her voice. He sees the kind of singular focus she has on her work. They share the same work ethic. He's just like, I got to find this girl. He leaves her a voice message and she's like, this can't possibly be him. And then (laughs) he helps her get signed to Columbia Records because at the time he is hired by Sony Music, which is at the time known as CBS Records, which is a parent of the Columbia label. And then he becomes shortly after, like in 1990, the CEO of Sony Music. So he's kind of her in and that's how she ends up getting the Columbia
0: deal. It's interesting, too, that they kind of make each other in a way because he gets her the deal at and she also becomes the flagship for his new position.
2: Right. A thousand percent. Yeah, a thousand percent. And in that way, it kind of flips this idea of, yes, he has ends up having a lot of power over her. Mm-hmm. But- he needs her and the kind of positioning that he is able to now take in the industry has so much to do with him signing her and working with her, which I think is
0: important to note. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, 35 years on here, we really think of Tommy Mottola, who did do a lot and many things outside of working with Mariah Carey. But I think history is going to remember him as having discovered Mariah Carey. Yeah, That's going to be the number one line in Tommy Mottola's obituary, I think. That in some ways does rewrite this narrative of control at the end of the day she defined him <laughs> and ultimately as we're going to lay out in the future episodes of the show she ended up being able to transcend him but I don't know that his story has ever really transcended her no it's nice to think about actually so how does her self-titled debut album come together we talked about this a lot of it is based on demos I'm curious about a couple things how hard does she have to fight to have those songs be the songs on the album how much permission does Tommy and the label give her to be the writer of her own music because as I mentioned, not a common practice for singers of her ilk in this particular moment. And then I guess simultaneously to the creative process of making this record, how does their personal relationship develop during the process of this?
2: Yeah, it's very complicated because the demo work is so strong that it's undeniable and so much of the demo work ends up again appearing on the record because of how strong it is but at the same time, Matola has a large hand in saying what the new vision of the demo records will sound and look like. Right. It's kind of established quite early on that he and his exec friends are going to have a large hand and say, especially sonically in the kind of sonic world that these albums are going to come out of. Right. And while so much of Mariah Carey's subtitled album is a reimagining of the demo, so much of it is reimagined by way of this old men's club. Mm -hmm. Even though her friend and collaborator Ben Margulies still ends up co-writing seven of the 11 songs of the album, they exclusively wanted to do the album together, but the label had rejected that Mm. Mariah and he, and then you have all these other producers and songwriters like Brett Lawrence and Rick Wake coming in to work on the album. And so it's kind of more hands in the cookie jar at that point. It's not strange, but it's a very unusual set of circumstances where an artist implicitly has some say because the demo record is so strong and so much is appearing in the debut album while also bringing all these other folk in to add their opinions and to and undercutting some of the original vision and idea for the earlier demo work and kind of, I wouldn't say fracturing Mariah and Ben's collaborative relationship, but adding more cookies to the cookie jar for sure.
0: Right. And also attempting to broaden the appeal of these records to like the most maximalist version possible. You go back and listen to a lot of these early records, many of which I like, but they sound like the platonic ideal of early 90s radio production. There's not a lot of texture and nuance or experimentation in the approach, which comes into play on some of her mid-period records a lot more. They feel very broadly produced, I would say.
2: Yeah, a thousand percent. And very accessible in a way that I think has a lot to do with Matola and his buddies.
0: And their personal relationship, is budding at this point?
2: Yes. I think their personal relationship is never romantic, actually. Right. What they admire in each other is their investments in the music, how serious they take the kind of business side to making the music. There's no messing around. And his belief in her, he's like, you will be the next Michael Jackson. I think that whatever form of connectedness and intimacy that they feel in their relationship has everything to do with his belief in her and his support of her as an artist, even though that becomes very fraught and tumultuous even shortly after they start collaborating together but he is a fan from the jump and then as a creepy older man <laughs> Yikes. Oh, that makes me cringe so hard. Yes. But it's like he symbolizes and embodies the security that Mariah feels like she's never had in her mm. life. Him buying in on her and him believing in her and putting all of this effort and energies behind her dream that she's fought for for so long. I think that is what allows him to kind of make his move towards pursuing, or at least Mariah is somewhat open to him pursuing her, at least on his end, romantically, which I don't think the romantic feelings were mutual at all, but she is open to this idea of being in relationship with him just because of these notions of power and stability that she feel could be very important to her career and to her life.
0: Absolutely. It's interesting. It's like the light side of their initial meeting, which was him seeing her and supporting what she had always seen about herself, the most fundamental thing she'd ever seen about herself. That was something kind of beautiful about that acknowledgement. And then it almost became something that he wanted to possess
3: right? and
0: almost take from her. I'm reminded of having just read Britney's memoir, a chilling moment in the memoir in which her father says something to her like, I'm Britney Spears now when he signs the conservatorship, it smacks a little bit of that man sort of claiming a woman's agency at a certain point. But it begins with something beautiful, which I think is worth noting. There is this recognition between the two of them of what she has, and I'm sure that's something that must have meant a lot to her. So on May 15th, 1990, Mariah drops her debut single, Vision of Love. As we mentioned, this is written by her and Ben Margulies. It's produced by Rhett Lawrence and Narada Michael Walden, who is an incredible... Incredibly prolific pop producer of the time period. And it is, I think, perhaps the greatest, if not one of the greatest, debut singles of all time. Can you describe what Vision of Love is like as a song, what it sounds like, what it's about, and how it presents Mariah in its initial presentation of her?
2: Yeah, so I would argue if you look up Melisma in the vocal Bible, (laughs) Mariah Carey's Vision of Love appears right next to Whitney Houston's cover of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You.
0: Yes, but this is first.
2: Yeah, this is first, but those two.
0: Can you describe what Melisma is to people that don't know?
2: Yeah, so Melisma is the singing of a single syllable of a lyric while moving between several different notes in succession. It
0: comes out of gospel tradition, essentially?
2: Yes, it can, but also some operas have melismatic singing, but it's supposed to be kind of the opposite of syllabic singing, in which each syllable of the text is matched in a single note. it's the inversion of that. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to it, you'll get a better idea of the way that melisma is working in the song. Can- I think Vision of Love, her vocal power in that song is just, Mm. I just Feel like she's singing her guts out. It's such a strong performance. Even between the kind of versatility that emerges by way of her use of Melissa, it's just so rooted and just so so strong. And it's also so impressive. Apparently, it only took three and a half minutes for her to record the song. What <laughs> in the what? Yeah,
0: you know, it is a gospel song in some ways. It's a song of inspiration. It's a song of uplift. It is a song about self belief. I mean. It's one of those songs that we were discussing earlier, which is a song that celebrates her faith in God, in herself, in the two things, because the sort of thrust of the song, you could sort of frame it as being about finding love, but you could also frame it as a finding of providence or something like that. A discovery of the divine. The song is essentially about going through hard times, but surviving them because you know that the promise of something, I don't know if it's love or if it's spiritual uplift or awakening awaits you on the other side. She says, knowing the one that I needed would find me eventually, i.e. this sort of sense of faith in God, I think. And I think you can feel the power of the Lord like pulsating through this song. For sure.
2: Also, I mean, her grandmother was a prophetess and always praying this into her as well. And mm. she comes from this Pentecostal, at least on her father's side of the family, tradition of like, you call upon the Lord, you pray to the Lord in all your times of need. Yeah. That's the foundation. So when things get shaky and rocky, like the house will fall nuts. You know what I mean? A
0: hundred percent.
2: You can totally hear her drawing upon those traditions. It's kind of like a conjuring, at least in her father's side of the family, the way that you use prayer and vision and conjuring to survive in this world, to make sure that generations of folk could survive, to envision that Mariah could have a chance at having her own dreams fulfilled. I think about it at that scale as well as like, the dream fulfilled to an extent.
0: Not just her dream, like an intergenerational dream. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Intergenerational dream that is also her trying to set forth a dream for what the future of not just her career could be, but what the future of her. Now we know she has children, but what her children have are those that she loves and cares about as well.
0: A hundred percent. It has that thrust of true connection to the divine. There's something that she's channeling in this song that is just greater than anything human. It is some intersection of pop music and spirituality and gospel and I think the other thing that really stands out to me about this early iteration of Mariah is her sense of dramatic build the way that this song moves from the rumble of something to the open heartedness of something to the actual explosiveness of the feeling towards the end I mean this song kind of builds towards the climax that ends with that incredible melismatic run on that very last note all oh. all
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Probably like the greatest example of melisma in pop history, that note. The way she tells the story through her vocal control is so powerful. Really stands out when you think about what you said earlier, which is that she recorded the damn thing in three minutes or whatever. It's so impressive. Yeah, You know, I was thinking about it also in the context of something I was reading about, which was this was all happening on the backdrop of Millie Vanilli the year earlier having been exposed as not having sung any of their album that they had won a Grammy Award for. So the appeal of this song was obviously just on its own as an utterly fantastic piece of music, but also sort of a return to virtuosic singing. Mm-hmm. The public was interested and ready for something that had this level of singing centrality to it, I guess.
2: Right, which folk are skeptical about early in her career. Like, is she just a studio artist, which I think why the Unplugged album does end up being a thing because folk need to hear her live in order to confirm that she's actually singing the songs. Right, Not everyone has access to seeing her perform live. She has her first national television appearances on the Arsenio Hall show and she performs Visions of Love. But She's not everywhere on television at that time. And so there's little murmurs around, oh, but is Mariah Carey actually singing?
0: Right. And what's so funny is watching those performances like on our city hall. She's not the sort of grounded, confident diva that we know her as today. Like there's something almost a little bit doe-eyed and almost like when you watch the voice come out of her, you're like, whoa, yeah. she's this tiny little thing. And like, it's almost like the voice is exploding from her in a way that she has some amount of control over, but also it's almost bigger than her is what I think when I watch her sing in this early period. It's a very interesting like, visual to see her just kind of teetering there, just exploding from her lungs in this way. So as we know, Vision of Love becomes a smash hit, number one single. She releases her self-titled debut album, Mariah Carey, later that year. Can you talk to me about what else is happening on this record? This album is obviously home to a series of number one singles, including Love Takes Time, including Someday, including I Don't Want to Cry, Can you talk about what else is happening on this record, whether that be building on what we've been talking about with the aesthetics of Vision of Love or anything different that's happening here?
2: I think you can see some of the gospel influences of Vision of Love carried into Love Takes Time, which ends up being the second single on the album. So there's a little bit of continuity there. I think her use of whistle on All in Your Mind is so disarming. I don't know how this is even vocally possible. <laughs> and I think, in general, just the album has such a vocal maturity that I'm just kind of like. Knowing that Mariah is only 19 years old, Mm. it's the voice that is mature, but also you can just kind of tell the level of introspection that she just has in performing this work. I remember myself at 19, I definitely wouldn't have, even if I had the voice to do it, I would have been able to make something seem so introspective and present and rooted. It's just so amazing.
0: I love that note too. And I also just wanted to say on Love Takes Time, there's a very specific Mariah songwriting style that develops in in her mid career, where it's the $2 words and it's the sort of conversational cadences to some of the way that she kind of raps. I mean, there's a moment where Mariah Carey kind of begins to songwrite like a rapper. Her songwriting here is very good, but there's like a certain broadness to the way that she approaches it. But one of my favorite things about Love Takes Time is the lyric on the chorus Love Takes Time to Heal When You're Hurting So Much. It's not a rhyme, but it's a very conversational line that I think kind of sets the stage for what she will refine later on which are these turns of phrases that feel almost conversational. I think about you're all up in my business like a Wendy interviewer. I don't look kind of like funny lyrics that she comes up with later that feel like something that she might make as a tossed off joke to a friend. I just love that in the context of this broad, humbling radio ballad that kind of defines this earlier work, you still can see maybe glimmers of the sort of future signature writing style that develops later on. I just always love that lyric. Love takes time to heal when you're hurting so much. It's not even a rhyme. You know, it's not even proper English, but it's a phrase someone actually might say to you when they're in a painful state. And my favorite single outside of Vision of Love on this record is Someday, which is kind of like an outlier record in this milieu because it's kind of an up-tempo song. Again, a song of resilience, which is like a common theme here. Love Takes Time, a song of resilience, a song about having pain, but being able to overcome it. Someday also is a song about the faith that something is going to turn out the way that you want it to. She's been dumped, but she knows that it's going to be okay, that he will ultimately regret it, yes, whatever, yes, whatever yes. it is, which is a theme that she comes back to a lot. And also features another sort of presaging moment, because a lot of times, I think Mariah's early music gets spoken about as kind of devoid of her hip-hop and r and b influences, which is something she herself claims in the memoir and is largely true. But there is a moment on the bridge of someday where she kind of raps a little bit you
1: another no. oh. could
0: It's a moment where perhaps some of the more idiosyncratic impulses that she will bring into her later work peeks through in the midst of this anodyne radio bombast that defines a lot of this music, if that makes sense.
2: No, that makes total sense. It's been a trip just to see how much of her earlier work you can see anticipating just how the songwriter and vocal performer that she'll be by the time we get to like, Rainbow is the fully actualized Mariah has arrived, but there's all these little nuances that you're picking up on and listening to the early work that you see become the edited form later on.
0: Yeah, I mean, even I was thinking I don't want to cry sounds like a broad precursor to my all or something like that. These are kind of like wide lensed views of a more refined version of her that will continue to evolve through the mid-period work. So as we mentioned, you don't have a more successful debut album than this. This record goes nine times platinum in the United States alone. It has four number one singles. As I mentioned, Vision of Love, Love Takes Time, Someday, and I Don't Wanna Cry. Can you talk a bit about the reception to Mariah Carey, the album and person following this work? I mean, obviously, this makes her a huge star, but there's a lot of criticisms that get leveled at her. How is this music received by the critical establishment, for instance?
2: Yeah, I think commercially it's a strong debut, but I think there's a bit of ambivalence on the side of folk, especially that are pop music critics. And not necessarily on the R&B side, which is fascinating to me. Mm. It's funny because Vision of Love charts number one on the R&B charts before it does in the pop charts, which I think is so interesting. But pop music critics are kind of taking a dig at the songwriting, Mm. especially because of the album's overt treatments of love. Folks say like the songwriting is kind of weak, but vocally she's a powerhouse and Mm. obviously can stand on her own. Folk that are coming from the R&B context that are listening to, engaging the work, writing about the work are a lot more generous versus folk on the kind of pop music side. But I always find that very interesting that the point of entry to taking a dig at the work is the songwriting.
0: Wasn't there also a lot of narrative around the fact that she had a lot of vocal power, but no soul? I mean, that was like a... Big criticism that got leveled at her a lot in her early work.
2: Yeah, which some of this happens in the context of R&B after emotions, but then things switch up because of her kind of more full embrace of R&B and soul explicitly. Right. I mean, the fact that Vision of Love, again, charts on the R&B charts at number one before it does on the pop charts, and to see then... Arsenio Hall being the place that she ends up first on national television shows you the the way that assumed Black consumers of the work Mm. are like fully embracing Mariah and then folk more oriented towards pop music kind of have their reservations or knowing that she might be a biracial Black woman Eric's anticipating this kind of sound that might be more in line with these notions around like the soul diva which is what does that even mean? That divide isn't always one to one but I do think that the kind of R&B audience is more receptive to the self-titled album. There's like more interest in Mariah Carey as an artist and like full kind of embrace of her than on the pop music side.
0: I completely agree. The other thing that I kind of walked away from this album thinking, which I won't say this is my favorite Mariah Carey album. I mean, Mariah Carey's made some pretty awesome albums. And like, this is an album to me that feels like four great singles and like a few other good songs. I'm just intrigued, I guess, by what this album says about the moment it comes into, that there's this feeling around vocalists that if you sing like Mariah Carey does, the only way to properly package that for a pop audience is through these kind of bombastic ballads. I love that Mariah Carey's musical oeuvre is ultimately defined by so many different types of songs, especially the ones that she excels at to me almost more so, or at least equal to these bombastic ballads are these kind of shimmering, ebullient, mid-tempo dance songs. That becomes a very important part of Mariah's musical legacy is these almost beams of sunshine roller rinks Songs that define a lot of her mid-period work, and I think Mariah, as we know and will come to light very shortly, always had her ear to the ground and like wanted to be making music that was more in touch with actual hip hop and R&B and black music of this time period. That was her shit. She talks about that a lot in the book. That she would be making these bombastic, broad radio ballads, and then going home and listening to Wu Tang mm-hmm. Clan stuff like that. So it was this interesting, more as a note on Tommy Mottola and Ilk, that they had kind of a limited vision, yeah. although an effective one, of what the packaging around somebody with this kind of voice had to be. It had to be these broad, anodyne ballads, and of course, Mariah takes them out of anodyne. She gives them a power and a emotional heft and a spiritual uplift that is singular but there's a certain edgelessness to this music yeah. that's what a tommy thought she needed to be popular or something like that i thought that was kind of interesting
3: yeah
2: and she talks about that quite a bit in the book that he feels kind of confused about her blackness right <laughs> and that he tries to take the quote-unquote urban red as black off of her it's and by the way, she presents herself, right? Insistent that she just wears her loose curls so she looks racially ambiguous. right. But also musically, don't do this, don't do that. Mm-hmm. We need a more universal, more ambiguous, or mainstream, meaning white, <laughs> sound. Right. So yeah, that's definitely so much a part of this earlier work. It's intimately wrapped up in all of that.
0: Right, and interestingly, as something that Whitney also struggled with. I mean, Whitney had a very fraught relationship to the Black community in phases of her career because of the way that a narrative developed around her that she was trying to sort of appeal to white audiences. I think this is clearly a moment where the racism of the American populace is visible in the way that music is marketed and created. And I think it's very important to note that it's Mariah Carey who is integral in changing that racist attitude in her music because it's really the integration and elevation of hip-hop and R&B in the mid-90s and late-90s that essentially ends that concept. The idea that Black music and Black artists can't be the most popular artists throughout the country is essentially ended once and for all, although it had been ended before. I mean, obviously, Black artists have been the most important, innovative forces in popular music from the beginning of it. But I think there's a conversation that ends in the mid-90s with the rise of gangster rap and the rise of radio rap. And then, of course, by what Mariah is doing, by mainstreaming hip-hop and R&B sounds through her own work, that kind of ends that conversation once and for all. But we're still living in a moment here in 1990 where this sort of idea of popularity or mass popularity is tied to performances of whiteness.
1: Yeah.
0: Of course, the irony being that this music is intimately tied to like gospel tradition, which is of course a Black tradition. So that is the element, I guess, of Black musical culture that feels acceptable to Tommy Mottola as mass marketed pop music. I don't know. That's an interesting wrinkle to that, I guess.
2: I think also Black dance music is all up in through this earlier work too. I think in particular, Make It Happen, which is on emotions. Yeah. Sampling like Alicia
0: Myers, I want to think- thank you. Oh, for sure. Let's talk about emotions, actually. So How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where, for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right, every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. In 1991, Mariah quickly turns around, basically in a year, her second album. This is called Emotions. Can you talk a little bit about what changes here? What shifts here? Is there more of an embrace of eclecticism? I know that Mariah shifts her approach here and there is conflict where she's trying to own some more diverse influences on this music, right?
2: Yeah, so I would say Emotions is definitely leaning into the more soul and R&B side of things versus the self-titled album. It's really more explicitly using Black music traditions yes there's big ballads like if it's over which she co-wrote with carol king but like i said there's songs like make it happen that go bombastic and building upon the bounce of black dance music of the 70s and samples alicia myers I just kind of reminding listeners of her musical inheritance and the things that she actually listens to.
0: Yes, and also is embracing elements of house music. Is produced by CNC Music Factory who are a huge house artist, essentially, at that moment. Yes. Known famously for Everybody Dance Now, Gonna Make <laughs> yeah, You Sweat. A yeah. classic house hit of this era. So it's also tying together two Black dance forms, the late 70s disco and early 90s house, which obviously early 90s house is kind of the child of disco music for sure and yeah as we were mentioning earlier make it happen also in a way that i think doesn't get fully explored on the debut is a very singular self-mythologizing song a song where mariah actually leans into autobiography and specificity about her own journey she talks about feeling abandoned and alone she talks about not having enough food to eat she sort of references her biography i mean this is like her superhero origin story song in a certain way Mariah begins to like tell her own story specifically in her work, which I think is a powerful aspect of the song. I love Make It Happen.
2: It's beautiful. It's so much fun.
0: It's also maybe like an early iteration of the Lizzo Empowerment yeah. Anthem. <laughs> it has a bit of that believe in yourself yeah, vibe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a rare early song also that doesn't seem to be explicitly celebrating God. A lot of Mariah's early works feel like they are standing in that gospel tradition of like, is she worshiping the Lord or is she looking for love? You don't really know. <laughs> Right. But Make It Happen is one of her first forays out of that. And then, of course, the lead single on the title track, which is her fifth consecutive number one, which is a huge achievement on the charts at that moment, is like a disco homage, an mm-hmm. explicit disco homage that literally is paying homage directly to Best of My Love by the Emotions. It's literally referenced in the title. Yeah. there definitely seems to be this taking back of her Blackness through this particular music, right? Yes,
2: thousand percent. You can see the turn back to the universal pop orientations, not entirely, but of the first album and a kind of turning away from that to try and build upon these musical inspirations that are so a part of Mariah's world as a listener, but also as an artist. Right.
0: And I also think Emotions is a really important single because... A, it's fantastic, and I think one of the most memorable singles from this early run of albums. You know, it has one of her most iconic employments of the whistle note at the end. But I think a big theme in Mariah's singles starts to become this burst of sunshine song, which you didn't really get a ton of on the debut. These songs that are just fully ebullient joy bombs that becomes such a huge part of the Mariah canon in this early period. And this song, I think in some ways is kind of the first explicitly fun Mariah single. This song is so bright and joyous in a way that I think informs a lot of her music going forward through this early period. Like the Mariah joy bomb song. And she's actually using the whistle tone to express that joy. She comes into the end of that song and she goes, You make me feel so... (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like she can't express her happiness in words anymore. Like she has to use the vocalizing to express it. It's such a beautiful moment. And one of those songs that just kind of is the expression of a smile.
2: Lots of exuberance in that song. I love it.
0: Yes. But the interesting thing about emotions is... It's successful by anybody's standards, but not on the same level as the debut. And that becomes an important narrative point. Before we pick up on Mariah's musical journey, one question that I want to ask you is, she has a very distinctive public image right now. We were talking about it at the beginning of the episode. But what is Mariah Carey's public image in this period? What is her public persona like?
2: I think her public persona is this young, innocent girl next door, At least with the self-titled album, it's like unassuming, at least her comportment aesthetically, how she shot for that album cover. Then folk hear her and they're like, I saw this and didn't think this. Mm. What the heck? This is drawing to me because you're shy and you're just kind of this capturing of her interior life in the way that she just shy keeps to herself. There's no building up of this sex symbol. Mm. Her sexuality is not necessarily a selling point for this earlier work. It's very much so playing up the innocence and in the girl next door. This changes a bit with emotions, but I still think the first two albums, up until Unplugged, I think there's this ambivalence around playing up Carrie's sexuality. It's more about her capacity as a vocalist versus using sexuality as a point of marketing or selling the records.
0: She feels very controlled, I feel like, in her public image in the way that now she feels loose and fun to absorb and sexual. I mean, Mariah's sexuality becomes an integral part of her music and her image beginning in the Mm mid-90s. That's not here at all. You can tell when you watch her in public or watch her in interviews that there's a held quality to it that I'm sure was both emanating from her own shyness, but also from the way that the overlords in her career Particularly, Tommy, were probably attempting to control and market her. they pleased to see you. I'm pleased to see
1: you. I'm pleased to be here.
0: <laughs> what a life. Of- and I think that that shows in the music. Of course, a lot of great music comes out of this, but the idiosyncrasies are not totally there in this music. Right. Emotions I found myself by the time I'm listening to this record in a similar way that I feel to the debut where it's like the individual songs and particularly the singles are very strong and I love them, but you don't get the gratification of knowing Mariah deeply through this music. You see her talent, you see a lot of great songwriting and craft, but you can feel the flattening hand of the marketing machine on top of these records. And she talks about that. I mean, it's born out in the Way that she expresses her process in making these albums. I mean, there was a lot of control exerted upon her.
1: Yes. And
0: restriction exerted upon her from above. You can hear that and see that, I feel.
2: Yes, a thousand percent. She notes that everything that Tommy felt he didn't create or had no control and was being strangled away or taken away from her, which is why the fun, carefree persona that she takes up in her videos is intentional. She's doing that to see a version of herself and to live vicariously through this avatar. It's like a girl she's pretending to be that she doesn't get to be in her actual
0: life. What is she like in videos? I mean, this is obviously an important music video era. Can you talk about that video persona a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think she's super smiley, super charismatic, fun, carefree, Mm -hmm. jovial. There seems like a level of openness that we know now is she's not experiencing in her personal life. Yes, Sometimes right. the kind of ways that she's embodying joy is unlike the campy side. They're just so over the top. Yes. But I think a lot of the earlier videos are really also playing up this girl next door aesthetic and the ways that Average viewer is meant to identify with her.
0: Yeah, she's a little shy and coy. Yeah. All right. So, going back to the music, Emotions is a big album by other people's standards, but I think is seen as somewhat of a disappointment following the debut. It sells 4 million copies, which is a lot of albums, but not the same amount of albums as the blockbuster debut. It has a number one hit in the title track, Can't Let Go, which is kind of a big ballad in the style of some of the earlier music, goes to number two. make it happen goes to number five whereas the first album had the four number one hits etc we've referenced this a few times she has a very famous appearance on mtv unplugged the following year in 1992 which produces another number one single in I'll Be There her cover of the Jackson 5 song is there anything important that we should know about that unplugged moment what is the narrative purpose of that moment in your mind
2: yeah the MTV unplugged session was recorded to promote emotions right. but I think it was also meant to demystify that Carrie was simply a studio artist and that couldn't hack it live
0: mm, right because she had never toured which is really important
2: yeah and folks hadn't had the chance to see her perform really live at that point and due to the really overwhelming reception of the unplugged performance then Columbus Columbia decided to release it as an EP but mm. it wasn't the plan initially and then I would just say about I'll be there it's chosen as a lead signal of the EP. But very rarely do you have a former number one song that's covered go number one again. Yes, especially because Mariah performed this song at Michael Jackson's funeral. I think in some ways it's tying two generations together, right? You have the Boomer generation, and then you have the Gen X generation that are experiencing music in vastly different ways. And a lot of the Gen X's relationship to R and B and soul music is by way of hip hop culture, which Boomers are kind of pissed about and feel like the ick about and don't really like. And I think this. This is one of the cultural moments, especially Black cultural moments, that kind of brings two generations together Mm. and streamlines the connective tissue between the hip-hop generation and then the soul, post-soul generation.
0: on this a little bit, but following the first run of Mariah's success, the sort of different receptions amongst different communities. I mean, does covering I'll Be There ingratiate her to Black audiences in a way that maybe she needed? Like, how is she received? I talked earlier about how Whitney had to struggle a lot against the criticism from the Black community that she wasn't playing to them. She was sort of trying to obscure her Blackness. Is that something that's also haunting Mariah at this time, narratively?
2: I don't think it is. This is a strange thing because... For all intents and purposes, Mariah is marketed in a way that tries to present her as racially ambiguous. Right. But I think sonically, she's able to cite Black music more explicitly in a way that Whitney did not get the opportunity to by way of Clive Davis's kind of own machinations and what he saw for Whitney's recording career. Yes. The citations are there vocally for Whitney and what she's able to draw upon via her voice versus what influences actually appear at the level of production. So I think that might be part of the reason that Mariah kind. Of she doesn't go unscathed, people are still curious about her the way that she's racialized or what her race is. But I don't think that folk are really preoccupied with whether she's black enough or not black enough until she takes this deep dive towards hip hop and RB. And then I think some of the discourse definitely changes around is she selling out? Is she using Mm. RB as like a come up, even though she's not part of the community? I think that's some of the way that that's showing up. So in this moment, it feels like her tapping in in a way that feels related to this question or idea of authenticity right. that I think gives her some cachet amongst Black listeners.
0: So let's talk about Mariah's third album, which is 1993's... Music Box. Now, this is one of the most successful Mariah Carey albums of all time. It's home to a number of her signature most indelible songs and a lot of critical songs, I think, in defining what the future of Mariah Carey music will be. It contains two of my all-time favorite Mariah Carey songs and is maybe my least favorite of the early three albums overall. It's in some ways, I think, a corrective to emotions. It feels like Tommy was a little bit like, okay, we let the leash get too long and we're going to... throw you back inside the box that I want you inside of here. Yeah. And yet through that, some interesting innovations emerge that set the stage for the next period of Mariah's career. So let's talk about on the bright side. So the first song on this album and the first single is a song called Dream Lover that I think is absolutely critical in the evolution of who Mariah Carey is about to become. Mm-hmm. In her earlier work, we talked about her collaborators. A primary collaborator that we haven't mentioned thus far is this guy, Walter Afanasieff. He's the producer of a of the bombastic early mariah carey ballads and we talked about cnc music factory being a new addition to the mix on emotions so in thinking about dream lover Mariah Carey explicitly and importantly brings in a new collaborator whose name is Dave Hall. And Dave Hall has a background in producing hip-hop and R&B music more specifically. He famously is involved in Mary J. Blige's seminal debut album, What's the 411, which comes out, I believe, the same year as
1: this record is.
0: So Dream Lover, which is kind of a different kind of Mariah single than we've heard before, is utilizing a sample almost in the way that a hip hop record might. It's sampling again the emotions. This time it's a song Blind Alley, which had been famously used in a rap song by Big Daddy Kane called Ain't No Half Steppin'.
1: in. to me, they wanna get some, but I'm the Kane, so yo, you know the outcome. I'm not the victory, they can't get with me, so pick Day, you are history. And
0: the production on this record sounds indebted to hip-hop in a way that no Mariah Carey song has before. The song has the boom-bap-thud of a hip-hop song of this era. And it's then sort of warped through a pop machine and comes out sounding like a very bright-sounding uber-pop maximalist summer day Mariah song, but I think it's very important to note that this record is perhaps the first time that Mariah explicitly employs hip-hop production techniques in her music.
1: Yes.
2: To your point, you can tell right away that it's indebted to hip hop. The drum machine, you could hear it pulsing throughout. It's definitely picking up on the way that R&B gets trafficked into hip hop music as well. And holding on to Black music is idiomatic. When I say that, I just mean that what we might call genres of Black music is always in conversation with the other. And that Big Daddy Kane sample of the emotions is kind of a citation of that ongoing artistic creative postulate for like the production of black music. Yes. I love Dream Lover. I think it's easy to get swept up in and it's very endearing. And given its purchase in the context of hip hop music, I think it's still a very accessible song. Yes. And I think folk listen to it and immediately can get
0: behind it. Yes, a hundred percent. I think the word I come up with in addition to accessible might be effortless. Yeah. It has an effortless quality to it. I think that it's euphoric. It feels like a bright summer day when I listen to it. I'm actually intrigued by the themes of it in the context of what we were talking about regarding her relationship with Tommy because it's sort of sung from the perspective of somebody who is trapped somewhere but dreaming of The escape of love. I'm interested in what you were talking about earlier in the conversation related to the fact that was there romantic love in Tommy and Mariah's relationship? One of Mariah's continuing motifs is her quote-unquote I'm eternally 12 thing. Her characterization of herself as perennially a little girl. And this song sort of has that POV of a girl who's dreaming of a Prince Charming and what that might be like and what it might be like to be taken away, to be rescued in a sense. So I think through the effervescence of this song, you also get an interesting insight beneath the surface to someone that was actually felt contained and a little bit caged that wasn't having this actual experience but was dreaming of having this experience.
2: Absolutely. It just the kind of pervasive like surveillance that she was beholden to during her marriage with Tommy and I think that your particular reading does illuminate a lot of this kind of like transcendental
0: state or a state of which
2: in the environment of which you're beholden to you're trying to extend beyond that and imagine being rescued and swept away.
0: Right, because this was the era of her and Tommy's relationship where things really started to get fraught. Yeah. She talks a lot in the book about how he was keeping tabs on her, surveilling her. Mm -hmm. She called her home with him in Bedford, New York Sing Sing. She literally felt as though she was imprisoned by this man. So there's something that allows this song to take on additional meaning when you think about it in that context. Like her sort of sitting inside this gilded cage and being like, but what I really want is true love and not this Svengali oppression that's put on me and my artistry. But if you can remove that deeper reading, Dream Lover just also the prototypical Mariah lead single that I think sets the stage for fantasy and heartbreaker and a lot of songs that will come after it. And Honey, these effervescent mid-tempo dance bangers that are definitive of Mariah Carey's future style. The second single, though, is one of her biggest and most signature hits and probably one of my least favorite of Mariah's signature hits. Same. I'm so glad we're on the same page here. This is hero and I also think this is one of Mariah Carey's least favorite Mariah Carey songs, according to the book too.
2: Yeah, I think it ends up being this transcendental song that's really tapping into the American psyche in a particular way. It's written for this movie called Hero. Gina Davis and Dustin Hoffman are in it. So there's a disconnect in my mind between like the depersonalization of the lyrics insofar as they're trying to attend to this universal idea of like the hero. But her vocal performance of it is not that to me. And so when I listen to it, there's this disconnect between lyrically what I'm being encouraged to buy into versus what the vocal performance is actually tapping
0: into and is doing. What is the vocal performance doing in your mind? I get so emotional
2: listening to the vocal performance, but then the lyrics are very, (laughs) in my mind, corny. And I disidentify with them at the level of like,
3: Mm. ooh,
2: cringe, corny, like, I don't (laughs) believe this. Versus how tender Mariah is in singing this and how deeply heartfelt and vulnerable she's being in singing this song. But the vulnerability is missing in the lyric.
0: Right. I completely concur with that read. I think it's interesting that she didn't write it for herself. I mean, this was originally a song she wrote for Gloria Estefan to sing. Which makes sense. Yes, makes way more sense. I mean, it does contain the theme that seems to be definitive of a lot of this early work which is overcoming adversity through faith but I agree it's got like a Disney four year old
3: kind of thing going <laughs> on to it it yeah.
0: feels like a song for children I got into a fight on Twitter with people the other day because I was like an 18 of some of the greatest pop songs of all time is this the definitive worst number one Mariah song and I got a lot of pushback from people that wanted to say that it's now that I found you with 98 Degrees which I can't totally argue with oh but. <laughs> yeah I mean
2: but that's just not even fair though oh um, <laughs>
0: That's oh! not but yeah, this song doesn't do it for me, I have to say. And I was honestly happy to see because I know that she's a woman of great taste. Mariah agrees. Mariah talks mm-hmm. at length in the book about how she hated this <laughs> song and has only recently she has come to appreciate it because it's become this song that is used to uplift other people like she sings it at inaugurations. And I think it was used after 9-11 in certain instances.
2: Yeah, it's taking on this whole patriotic
0: quality. Right, which you know has its own icky, I guess, connotation to it. Yeah, yeah. But she's only come to appreciate it through what it's delivered culturally. She didn't really appreciate it, which that was cleansing to me because this has definitely always been a song that has not clicked for me, but is a smash hit and is one of her signature songs to many people. So there's that. The rest of this album is a bit of a struggle for me, I have to say. There's some things that I like about it, like I kind of enjoy now that I know being like a full ass house song produced by CNC Music Factory. I think Anytime You Need a Friend is one of the greatest iterations of Mariah gospel ballads of this period, like the apex of the Love Takes Time, Vision of Love style, Mariah Carey ballad. That bridge into that final chorus hits that kind of spine-tingling, spiritual uplift that Vision of Love did. But... This album represents the end of something to me. It represents the end of a very specific period of Mariah's work where her edges were sanded down for maximal commercial impact or what one older white man thought made maximal commercial impact. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, a thousand percent. Something seems deeply impersonal about this album. Yes. Outside of Dream Lover, I feel the Mariah Twinkle is just not as Present.
0: I wonder if you can hear this too, like outside of hero and anytime you need a friend, I wonder if she had taken some of the criticisms of her vocal bombast to heart. It feels like she's modulating her power.
2: I can totally see that.
0: Like she's attempting to show people, yeah, I can do things other than that, but it feels disengaged in some moments to me, like her heart's not fully in it.
2: Yeah, and some of the rawness and passion that comes with her power and her bombastic style, you could see the edges of that just being made into much, and just like, oh, here, this palatable
3: thing. Yeah,
0: I think kind of the worst iteration, maybe even worse than Hero, is her cover of Bad Fingers Without You, which is <laughs> another one of my least favorite Mariah singles. It's just so corny. I can't live is without you I
1: can't live I can't live be-
0: And I think I can sense her disengagement from it. Because we know from the memoir and behind the scenes that she was really starting to chafe against the control that she was being put under creatively. Yes. And I feel like maybe that manifests in the music here. Yeah. But... Music Box is another massive success for Mariah Carey. It is a diamond record of which she has a few. It has two number one singles in Hero and Dream Lover. Without You is a number three record. Anytime You Need a Friend goes number 12. So it's a big hit to say the least. I think we should touch briefly, although we are going to do a Patreon episode that I want to direct everyone to that talks a little bit about Mariah in the tradition of the Queen of Christmas. Oh, wonderful. But in 1994, she releases her album Merry Christmas, which has gone on to be one of the most successful Christmas albums of all time. And of course, it's home to a little song that some people might know called All I Want for Christmas is You. (laughs) In brief, just because we have to talk about it. Is there anything that you would like to share with us about this perennial holiday? holiday classic. Perhaps the only serious addition to the Christmas catalog in the last four decades of American life.
2: Right. I mean, it's so amazing that this ends up being essentially a Christmas standard. Yes. I grew up listening to Motown's iterations of Christmas music and Motown's artist Christmas albums. So her ability is to take those motifs and use them throughout the album, but crystallize them by way of this single... Because we know so many of the motifs that we associate with Christmas, at least in the Western world, use white or whiteness as its anchor. Mm. For her to take this Motown iteration of the Christmas song, but use these sensibilities by way of uptempo to make it this poppy, almost hyper pop song is so, (laughs) it's the most unique and fascinating thing. I just can't even believe she was able to do this because there is no mistaking the Motown influences of All I Want For Christmas Is You, while also just being like, whoa, the use of synthesizers, Mm. what is happening?
0: I wrote in my notes, this song really defines the word timeless. It could be 1950, it could be 1994, it could be today. It feels unlodged from time in the way that it sort of interacts with pop's cyclical timelessness. I think you're right that the most obvious reference point is both Motown and I guess Phil Spector's Wall of Sound Ronette's thing going on.
2: Yes, thousand percent.
0: Yeah, and I think it also captures the sort of essence of these early Mariah Carey hits, which is the joy bombness. I mean, it is absolutely a bullion. It's just this effervescent joy bomb. It's a it's gonna say Qua song. It's hard to like put your finger on exactly why it's so perfect, but it is perfect. And I think what's funny about it is I don't think a lot of people realize that she wrote it. I think a lot of people think it's a cover of a standard. Like it has the feeling of a standard.
2: Yeah, it's definitely become a, a standard in and of itself, which is very freaking hard to do when it comes to Christmas music because we have our Christmas standards and they yeah. can't reimagine all the time, but this is something wholly singular and to itself, and that's very, very yeah. hard to do.
0: All right, so I want to conclude this section of our conversation talking about perhaps the most critical album in Mariah Carey's discography, something I would maybe characterize as the moment where Mariah Carey, as we know her today, begins to really come into form and focus, and that is her fourth album, 1995's Daydream. So before we get into into specifics about this record. I'm wondering if you can talk about why this album is different than the previous three Mariah Carey albums. And I mean that in terms of why it sounds different and also how Mariah's approach behind the scenes or perhaps her control over the creative process made it different. So let's start with that. Why is this record a considerable pivot from the previous three Mariah Carey albums in your mind?
2: So this is kind of the height of... Mariah's and Tommy's creative differences and so Mariah is very, in so many words, pissed yeah. <laughs> about just the kinds of disagreements that they're having around direction, musically and aesthetically.
0: Right. Namely that he essentially hates hip-hop. Exactly. Kind of being the most important element of that. Like he's actively sort of resentful of and doesn't understand hip-hop music.
2: A thousand percent, whereas Mariah is keenly aware of the rise of hip-hop culture in the U.S. and its relationship to pop music and its ever-increasing popularization. And it feels very condescending to her because her ear and Hart is so attuned to this fairly new cultural formation and she knows it's about to pop off Mm. but they couldn't be further apart in their taste and instincts. Part of it has to do with age but I think also it has to do with again this idea of control and Matola feeling like if I don't have control or say over this thing then it's not going to happen or I'm going to dismiss it or undercut it or make it seem trivial or dismiss it altogether. And I think also some of her rage gets channeled by way of her work with David Morales to work on remixes and make remixes As she writes in her autobiography, she's able to make herself happy Mm. by making work that is meant for the club kids that she adores and adore her. Some of the remixes are complete rewrites. Some are all new vocal tracks. Some may be recycling more from the original than others. But this is the lane that she gets to kind of channel some of her creative frustration and angst. And she said, working with Morales late nights in her home studio in Sing Sing, is a way that she found liberation, was able to feel free even for a fleeting moment. And so I think that's a large part of this Daydream album, having that kind of confidence in her creative instincts by way of the remix in particular, but just trusting her ear. And that's how she ends up wanting to work with Jermaine Dupri because she finds that they have similar ears, similar Mm. instincts when it comes to fusing R&B music and hip hop music. Mm. The rawness that he has in a lot of his music early on, in particular working with Escape, she sees in her own desire to incorporate the kind of rawness Mm. of hip hop in work so there's all these ways that daydream gets to be this launching pad for this new iteration of mariah that's trying to disentangle herself from a tommy mottola and trying to as an individual, right, um, have some sort of freedom, but even artistically reclaim her own creative freedom. So I think that that's some of the ways that she gets to Daydream and how Daydream becomes this new iteration of Mariah Carey, albeit one that we're more familiar with now.
3: Right,
0: exactly. But at the time felt kind of radical. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting looking back at this record, there's a few things I want to say. One is it feels almost caught in between Mariah and Tommy. Half of this album feels like it's stuck in an old adult contemporary Mariah Carrie, and some of it feels thrillingly forward-thinking. And she sounds notably different on various tracks here. You can sort of feel the excitement in the air on tracks where you got the sense that she was given permission to be the young woman that she was. I mean, the young black woman that she was, we should say also. I mean, you're also dealing with the conflict between an older white man and a young woman of color who is part of the hip-hop generation, Mm -hmm. and who has had very little avenue to incorporate what she understands is going to be the the central focus of youth culture. I mean, it already is in many elements of youth culture, but is about to become the centralized part of popular culture. And I think it's worth pointing out just contextually what's going on in pop music as it pertains to hip hop at this time. One album that feels critical to me in setting up Daydream is Mary J. Blige's What's the 411 which comes out two years prior and Mary is introduced to the world as the queen of hip hop soul, somebody that is bridging the worlds of more traditional R&B singing with overt references to hip hop. Her production is indebted to boom bap and sample hip hop culture. She presents and has the swagger of a rapper. You know, she's maybe one of the first R&B singers who's very explicitly positioning herself within the confines of hip hop culture. And I think that that speaks to what makes Mary a fascinating artist, but also the continuing centralization of the genre in general. I mean, you're also in a period where Biggie is exploding. You're in a period where Tupac is exploding and not just exploding within the traditional confines of hip hop, but really crossing over. Hip hop had obviously crossed over in the late 80s with Run DMC and acts like that. but Hip hop and an aggressive sort of street oriented style of hip hop was having a huge moment of pop crossover. You know, you're just prior to the emerge of Jay-Z, who obviously figure into Mariah's later 90s career. And so there is this very obvious undercurrent where hip hop is no longer a fun niche genre that the mainstream pop is aware of and flirts with periodically, but is becoming a very important part of mainstream and particularly white American culture at this moment. I think that's important context for like what Mariah is going to do here and why she is so prescient. Because at the same time, outside of a Mary J. Blige, there really has not been a mainstream pop superstar. I mean, I think Janet maybe has done this in a couple of instances. Mm -hmm. Madonna even on albums like Bedtime Stories or Erotica has dabbled in certain hip hop aesthetics. But there hasn't been this wholehearted, full fusion embraced by a mainstream superstar of hip-hop culture and contemporary hip-hop culture in this way. So I think there is a spark of genius here that Mariah is the fulcrum point in and maybe just get something that's going to be such a critical part of pop music moving forward. So I feel like those are all important contexts here. And I think the other thing that needs to just get stated, which I think is already very clear to people is tell me if you disagree with this characterization. Okay. Mariah prior to Daydream is not cool to the public. (laughs) She may have been a cool chick underneath it all. Right. But the way she's been marketed to this point, she's the biggest, broadest pop product possible. But I don't think people saw Mariah Carey as cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if some of the ways that blackness and the notion of being cool, especially in relation to hip hop culture is emerging at that time, and that is something that folk are gravitating towards in pop music, Mariah, Prior Daydream is not that. Unless you maybe know her interpersonally, she's not giving that at all. Definitely adult contemporary vibes. I would definitely agree with you in that way.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. So before we even talk about the rest of music on Daydream, I think we need to talk about fantasy in particular, because I believe this to be the most important song in Mariah's discography, and also perhaps one of the 20 most important pop songs maybe ever created. So let's talk a little bit about the original fantasy, and then let's talk about the remix. What is happening on the original fantasy? This is, of course, the lead single from this record. It famously utilizes a sample from Tom Club's Genius of Love. Mm-hmm. How is this record building on things Mariah has done in the past? For instance, Dream Lover, and what is new here? Before we get to the remix, what is this song doing exactly?
2: I think the young energy of like a dream lover is paralleling this young energy of a fantasy. Yeah. And I think what makes this record different is obviously the use of Genius of Love, which is this electro-funk song from the 1980s. So it gives us more hip hop adjacent rhythm section. Mm. There's more bounce to it. (laughs) But I think that the remix doesn't really depart much sonically from the way that the original uses Tom Tom Club's sample of Genius of Love. But I do think there's a kind of vibrancy and youthfulness that the song is able to capture that has been a part of Mariah's work up until this point. So I think that's some of what Mariah's building upon that she's already kind of done up until that point. But I think right. this use of this sample, Genius of Love is really trafficking in sonically the kind of boom-bastic rhythm of hip hop music.
1: You know, Mariah
0: has sampled music in the past, but there's a way in which this sample is employed and its obviousness, I think, makes it part and parcel with hip hop mm-hmm. culture. Part of hip hop culture is this kind of postmodern recontextualizing of past particularly black musical styles into something contemporary and fresh like it's a postmodern take on that and I think this song is a pop star utilizing samples in the way that rappers and hip-hop artists had done to this point in that the sample is obvious it's there she's interpolating literal lyrics from the song on the bridge which will then become the chorus of the mm-hmm. remake. so I think that that is one of the ways that this song is explicitly hip-hop in the way that like dream lover is utilizing elements of hip-hop but doesn't feel hip pop itself, whereas this song feels hip hop itself, not to mention the sort of use of that G-funk synthesizer noise that kind of runs through the verses. So there's very explicit nods to hip hop. Of course, in speaking about Mary J. Blige, Dave Hall produces this song with Mariah, and he's a famous Mary J. Blige collaborator. So again, Mary J. can't be underestimated in her influence on this here. But Mary J. is also seen so much more as an R&B star at this time in her career, whereas Mariah is the purest pop Mm -hmm. figure of the moment. And then I think one of the things that feels important to setting up why the remix is even more of a cultural shift is I think the employment of the voice here still feels tied to old Mariah on the original. She is belting through this song. Oh, when you walk by, you know, it's a full voice. And then the chorus has a full belt to it when she gets to that chorus. And one thing that's going to change a lot following Daydream is Mariah's employment of the sort of sensuous coup yes. as a form of restraint from the giant diva vocals that had defined her previous mm-hmm. work. And I think one of the genius elements of the remix, which is then done by Puff Daddy, is taking the coup that appears on on the bridge of the original song, which is the interpolation of the Genius of Love chorus. Right. I'm in which Mariah sings in kind of a breathy voice on that. Yes. And what Puff Daddy comes in and does on the remix before we even get to the old dirty bastard of the whole thing is centralize that part of the song. Centralize the coup. And I think that that is one of the most radical moments in Mariah Carey's artistic evolution is sort of how can we have this artist function on record without forcing her to just completely blow her voice out at every single moment. Because I think to this point, Tommy had utilized her as like a blunt instrument. So much of Mariah Carey's music to this point had been about how do we showcase this bombastic five octave range Mm -hmm. at every turn? And this was perhaps the first moment where someone said like, no, Mariah can appeal in other ways. And I think that's part of the genius of the flip of the remix, centralizing the coup. Come on.
2: And that's keeping so true to the heart of hip-hop as a culture. Like, it's about all of the elements. It's not simply about the MC over the DJ. It's In this context, every element to the remix is equally important. Whereas Mariah, for better or for worse, I guess, in the earlier part, pre-Daydream, it's pretty clear that her voice is what matters most and what's the singular focus of listening for consumers or folk that are listening to her work. But whereas a track like the fantasy remix, all of the parts matter. And if any part falls out. It's just not the same record. It's not the same track. So yeah, I definitely feel like even if not explicitly, implicitly, there's this super hip-hop sensibility in that. Mm. All parts matter. Yes, Everyone's contribution matters. You know, it's about the collective. It's about the collaborative. It's right. not about the singular artists. Yeah.
0: Right. I love that point. That's mm-hmm. such a good point. And that brings us to probably the most radical element of this remix, which is the addition of Wu-Tang Clan bone-vivant slash borderline crazy person, old dirty bastard. May he rest in peace. Rest
2: in peace, Od- B. I love you forever.
0: Yes, probably one of the most thrilling voices in pop music history. Can you just characterize for people who don't understand this or who only understand Mariah through a contemporary filter where we think of her as a product of hip-hop, how radical and strange it might have been for a contemporary radio listener in 1995 to hear Mariah Carey and Old Dirty Bastard on a song together?
2: I mean, it's one thing to have a rapper be featured on your remix but to have ODB featured. I mean, and folk have been exposed to ODB by way of Wu Tang Clan and his solo work.
1: Simi, simi, yo, simi, yeah, simi, yeah. Give me the mic so I can take it away. Off on a natural for from the home of the dogs
2: of But I think at this point, Wu-Tang clan is still tries to at least frame itself with the underground. Yes, for sure. For a figure like ODB, who, for all intents and purposes, is very irreverent in his self-possession. Yes. Irreverent <laughs> in the way that he performs. And that's also a large part of the way that the Wu-Tang clan tries to represent itself. It's like Wu-Tang clan is for the kids, right? But it's this kind of play on like <laughs> We are going to keep the hip hop. We are not concerned with selling of records and albums. We are going to speak from the very positionality of which this work comes out of. And we're not trying to tailor this work to make it palatable for anyone to so- To employ ODB, who is also, I feel like, one of the most underrated members of the Wu-Tang Clan, who doesn't always get his shine, who is the more, I guess, quirky and... Freewheeling, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Members of the Wu-Tang Clan. In that moment, it's such a shock and surprise. But I also love that Mariah is just so insistent about ODB, even when she plays ODB's verse for Tommy Mottola, and he's like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, (laughs) use my language, what is this? this i could do this totally being a hater mm-hmm. and that could have been a moment where she could have been like oh my gosh what am i gonna do now it's not gelling or like he doesn't like it he hates it da-da-da. but she was like nope this is the remix this is the song i don't care if you don't like it truly trusting her gut and her instincts yes.
1: me and mariah go back like babies were pacifiers. Right. old dirt dog no liar right. keep the fantasy hot like fire <laughs> jump jump, 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 jump. You do who the stuff Girls, let me see you your right, right. the
2: back also just wanting to feature ODB in the video as well and make him like an essential component of the video and highlighting his performance I think is also a big middle fingered probably to Mottola, but also other folk that are just trying to treat this moment as frivolous or not valuing what ODB brings to the song. So yeah, that's what makes this song so unique and special is the way that Mariah's instincts are able to capture this very singular moment in hip hop culture and pop music culture. I have yet to find a remix that has done that since.
0: No, the most important pop remix of all time. And I think one of the more beautiful super narratives around this is it's a moment in which a young Black woman agency changes the history of pop music. It's a moment where a young black woman stands up to a white record man of the ages and says, I know better than you. And she was so right. And he was so wrong. There's like a super narrative to this that also feels powerful in this history of the under celebration of black women in the pop space. This feels like a moment of victory in that regard as well, I think. thousand percent. And again, I just want to underline just how tightly wound I I think Mariah felt to people in the public eye because she was tightly wound not by necessarily her own choice. I think she was seen as just this very controlled product and to sort of hear that and that vocal virtuosity against something as unpredictable as Old Dirty Bastard. It's that contrast I think that makes the record so memorable and effective outside of just what an incredible idea it is. It's also just an amazing display of contrast. It's such a great combination in that way. I always think about how radical it was to hear Mariah Carey, the most central, broad seeming pop star, singing the lyrics What you gonna do when you get out of jail?
3: Right? Yeah.
0: So, obviously, fantasy is a massive hit. It's both one of the most important hits of Mariah's career, and also, you can think of the entire lineage. I mean, pop stars had collaborated with rappers in the past, but this is the real big boom moment of every Jennifer Lopez song, every Ashanti Ja Rule collaboration. Eventually, when you hear Drake vacillating between singing and rapping, all of this can be tied back to this moment. I mean, fantasy is obviously both very important and also the most fun. What a blast. What an incredibly fun song this is. Let's talk about the rest of Daydream. What's going on on the rest of Daydream? How does it slot into the conversation we're having about the increasing centralization of hip-hop and also the conversation we're having about Mariah attempting to seize control of her career and Tommy's continued influence on her career?
2: I think this album, as you noted earlier, it still seems somewhat split between the adult contemporary sound and then this new direction for Mariah that is very invested in fusing pop, R&B, and hip-hop together, yes. so much like Mariah's trying to feature the black genius of ODB, her collaboration with Boys to Men on One Sweet Day is also this amazing moment of just black genius at its apex mm. in pop music. Just how well they are able to work together. I mean, harmonically, the kind of nuances that emerge out of this song are just so beautiful. I often can't play this song if I'm out in public because I will cry. (laughs) (laughs) I have personal memories related to the song as a young person, but also it's just the tenderness of this big ballad is just so meteoric and so overwhelming that I can only listen to it if I'm going to be like in solitude or in my office somewhere and I have some Mm. Kleenex nearby because it just it is just so moving in that way
0: it really is it's so rousing and it gives you obviously a monumental showcase of vocal acrobatics, melisma ing up for yes, fucking wazoo. Yes, yes. This song is definitely reaching for the heavens and the gospel tradition of a lot of great Mariah songs, but probably the most bombastic of the group yet so far. And I think the only thing that I would say about One Sweet Day is that, as with a lot of her collaborations with Walter, a CF, which I, I can never say his name correctly, but this is obviously a collaborator we've spoken about in the past who's produced a lot of the gloopier ballads that Mariah has been known to for this point. The production definitely feels compared to the innovations and thrills of a fantasy or even of the germane tracks on this record. You can feel the kind of, I don't want to say roteness because this is obviously a transcendent song in many ways, but this song, I think, aesthetically feels tied to previous Mariah eras more so than the more exciting productions because this is also also Daydream is the album where Mariah becomes an interesting artist production-wise. I mean, this is not something that she has really had in previous works. She's been a vocal technician. She's thrilled through the voice in most instances. It hasn't been about innovations in production. And obviously, fantasy and the fantasy remix changes that forever. But I also think Always Be My Baby and the other Jermaine Dupri collaborations on this record are also incredibly innovative and contemporary-sounding records. Always be my baby maybe on some days my favorite Mariah song just an absolute life affirming yes. mid tempo R&B ballad that i think captures a really specific mode of Mariah that gets refined through a lot of her work from this point on which is a wistful warm nostalgia that she's able to sort of capture It has that bounce of the contemporary hip hop song, Right, the boom bap is there for sure. Exactly, and it features a mode of Mariah that I don't think we've ever really seen before, which is kind of this breezy and relaxed tone. I think Mariah had been known for that point for melodrama and bombast and all these words that we use all the time and there's something about this record which feels very instructive to a lot of her songs that will come after it which is this kind of ease this breeziness the relaxed nature of the delivery of the vocals on this song feels so smart so canny such an important move away from the sort of stylized diva vocals of the previous generation and looking ahead towards what r&b divas are going to sound like coming after her And I think, very importantly, a solidifying moment for Mariah's very unique writing style, which I think is defined in many ways by the Tencent words, the SAT words, and the way that she incorporates that. I think of, but inevitably, being like one of her first real employments of the Tencent word, and also will linger on. There's lots of great little flourishes, because I think Mariah's songwriting in previous albums is very technically solid, but perhaps less distinctive.
3: Mm -hmm. And I think
0: this this is the beginning of Mariah, the very distinctive lyric employer. You mentioned them earlier, but you can hear songs like Just Kicking It by Escape, which also was produced by Jermaine on Like you can hear the subtle influences of R&B and hip hop on this record. Less overt than on fantasy, but also very important, I think, in terms of creating the future sound of Mariah that's going to meld pop, R&B, and hip hop. I just love, 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 love Always Be My Baby. 1,000%. Just spine tingling every single time. One of her most emotionally effective songs. I'm more moved by Always Be My Baby than I am by some of the songs where she's screaming melodramatic emotions.
2: Yeah, because there's something that feels... I hate using the word authenticity, but I do think there is a level of authenticity that is captured in that moment that just feels carefree. We see her play up the carefree Mariah and videos prior to Daydream, but sonically, it really feels in a song like Always Be My Baby that she actually is embodying that.
0: For sure. And I think it also ties back to themes that Mariah. I deals with a lot which is sort of faith in Perseverance, which I feel like Mariah returns to so often in her music. You know, Mm -hmm. I know you'll be back. There's this kind of positive affirmation or this sort of faith that animates a lot of the more moving Mariah Carey songs to me. She has this certain sense of hope. I think this is a song of hope, you know, and I think that that's one of the more powerful aspects of it. And the nostalgia, the wistfulness of it, it's just such a brilliant song. And I think that highlights, you know, another highlight of this record for me is Underneath the Stars, where she sort of gets into speaking to your area of interest kind of a mini Ripperton-esque 70s soul vibe, which I think becomes another mode that becomes important on later Mariah albums. I think again, speaking to the connection to Always Be My Baby, she's very good at capturing a moment in her lyrics. Here's how this felt. Here's how the weather was in this moment. Here was the temperature of the room underneath the stars, wrapped in a warm, gentle breeze, she says. She alludes directly to the Bloodstone song, Natural High. She talks about being on a natural high. There's something very intimate and warm and nostalgic about this song as well. Not to mention, rhapsodizing a ten cent word. I love that some <laughs> yeah. of these quirks start to come through in the music here.
2: Yeah, it's something you take for granted in the later work, but to see it being emergent in that context is really, really cool to see.
0: Yeah, and then the last thing that I want to highlight and then I want to ask you if there's anything else you want to talk about about Daydream is the song Long Ago mm. feels very critical because this is another Jermaine Dupri production it's the first time you really hear her singing over essentially like a hard ass hip hop beat. This is sampling Zapp's more bounce to the ounce and it feels like a prototype for a kind of Mariah song that will emerge more clearly formed on like the roof for instance on Butterfly, but sort of Mariah essentially just taking what would be a hard rap beat and singing over it, which is also an incredibly influential innovation that Mariah brings into pop music. And I think this song, while not a big hit from this record, feels like a seminal moment in that development of that part of her artistry i <laughs>
2: Yeah, a thousand percent. I'm a big Journey fan, so I like the open arms cover.
0: (laughs) Oh, see, we're not going to be there. This is the
2: moment where I'm like, the 80s covers. No. I'm sorry. I'm corny. I love it. (laughs) You know, I respect you.
0: I don't want to yuck your yum.
2: It just takes this weird hip hop adjacent orientation that is fascinating to me. And I just also, Journey's open arms makes me cry too. So I'm just, I'm a big old cornball and sap. So I'm sorry. Honorable mention. Yes, I respect your Journey.
0: (laughs) Honorable mention. Yeah. And I mean, on That note, I think I grate more heavily against the old school Walter ballads on this record.
2: Gotcha, yeah, I feel that.
0: Because I think in contrast, to how great the new stuff is on here. I think there's a part of me that's like, I don't need I Am Free. You know, I don't need the songs that sort of go back to the old mode of Mariah feel more garish here to me in the context of how exciting the new stuff is. So I think Daydream's a really interesting listen to me. One of those records where it's like artistic breakthrough, like when you see somebody you love breakthrough to a newer plane of existence, like it kind of reminds me a little bit of Beyonce's song self-titled album. These moments where you watch an artist ascend to the next level of their artistry and it's so exciting but then this album also has moments where I'm like you can feel the hand of Tommy Mottola in the mix here too. Yes still ever present. Yes when you think about that. It's exciting because you know I guess on some level that she's going to continue to break free from this but I think there's vestiges of the old mode here that feel more grating to me than they even do on the past records because the new stuff is just so exciting here. I feel that. So obviously This record is massively successful. It goes diamond. It has three number one smashes in fantasy, One Sweet Day and Always Be My Baby. One Sweet Day goes many, many years being the longest running yes. number one song of all time until Little Nas X comes around and changes that. But 16 weeks at number one, a massive success. Can you just talk about how this record reorients Mariah's image? Coming off of the success of this, coming off of everything that we've discussed so far, how does Daydream and its attendant singles, videos, et cetera, change who Mariah is in public imagination, and maybe who her fans are,
3: too.
2: Yeah, I think she kind of forces folk to stop making this association with her work, with the idea of the adult contemporary genre, and really is ten toes down, like, (laughs) I'm a biracial Black woman. There is an identity part of it that I think is always hovering around her in the earlier parts of her career, and this, I would say, this kind of phobic object that listeners, that execs like Matola, a record company like Columbia Records, don't know what to do with it, and it's like Mm. this deep source of anxiety for them all, and I think what Daydream does is fully embraces that kind of anxiety that folk are placing around her as this entity that circulates in the public and she's just like 10 toes down actually no mm-hmm. i'm embracing my blackness i've never once said that i'm not black even though the powers that be have tried to make it as such even though i still have to be in this arrangement with this individual or individuals i'm going to do everything within my power to stand 10 toes down in my black music inheritance and to stand mm-hmm. 10 toes down in what i believe and value musically and aesthetically That's kind of like be all strung out i don't give a yes fuck anxieties are not mine and that's a heartbreaking thing that later those kind of anxieties become this biographical narrative that surrounds Mariah like she doesn't want to claim her blackness or she's trying to pass racially and all of this when that couldn't be further from the Mm. truth and I love that she wrote her autobiography her analyses of race are so incisive they're so pointed Mm. they are so vested in telling the truth and very justice oriented also which you wouldn't think Mariah Carey has an analysis of policing in the United States of America America, or has an analysis of colorism. Daydream is this moment where Mariah Carey is making it very clear, at least by way of her public persona, that yeah, as an artist, this is what I'm invested in. Mm. Even if I have to play both sides for the sake of the contract that I'm beholden to, you will know sonically and aesthetically what my investments are. Maybe even personally as a human, what my investments are.
0: Absolutely. I think that is so well said. The only other thing I would add to it is I think this is the moment where Mariah says, you will take me serious. I am not just a vocal machine. I am somebody that has more to say than that, has ideas and can execute on them and make hits that don't sound very much like the bombastic, broad adult contemporary ballads that I became known for. Right. And I can work in different styles and I can create the future of pop. And like, I think people didn't understand that about Mariah Carey until this very moment. And I think maybe they didn't even totally credit her with it in the moment. And maybe it's only in retrospect that we've been able to really give her her prop where she deserves them. I guess on that note, my last question or my second to last question before we get out of here is what do you think Mariah still had to prove? Here you have somebody who's coming off of four of the biggest pop albums of the 90s, kind of an unbroken run of massive success, constantly building on her artistry. She's proven herself over and over again. Mm -hmm. What do you think coming into the latter half of the 90s, Mariah Carey still has to prove as an artist?
2: I don't think she has to prove anything, but I think she feels like she has to show folk that she is a songwriter. Mm. Her pen goes crazy crazy. So I think that's why uh, Butterfly and a Rainbow, you can see some of the little nuances lyrically that she is employing in some tracks in Daydream. Mm -hmm. You see those become more refined and actualized on albums like Butterfly and Rainbow. I think the latter half of her career, she's really was like, man, my pen is not to be messed with, and Mm -hmm. I am a songwriter as much as I am a vocalist and performer. I don't know if she feels self conscious about that, but I do feel like there's something about songwriting, especially in the earlier parts of her career where folk are like you're a great vocalist but I'm not sure about your songwriting right. I don't think she has anything to prove I don't think she herself maybe feels that way but I think she's really like okay now you know that I'm not the studio artist right. I'm gonna go crazy with my pen and there will be no denial of my ability to songwrite
0: mm-hmm. that idiosyncratic approach to songwriting is gonna be something that we're gonna get to explore especially in the next episode and I'm very excited to talk about some of my favorite Mariah that emerge in this period
2: it's gonna be amazing yeah
0: I can't wait so my last question for you is what is an underrated Mariah song from the period we've talked about today? Maybe something we just haven't highlighted that you just think people should know that maybe they wouldn't know that we could send the podcast out on.
2: I do like open arms, but we don't have to go out on that. That would make you cringe so hard. I will not make you suffer. Through <laughs> open arms.
0: I honestly appreciate it so much. <laughs>
2: I was like, now that I think of it, that is a sleeper right there. Um, I think I sent you a song. Now I'm thinking of it. I don't remember what it was. Oh, Alone in Love from her
0: self-titled. Okay. Do you want to say why? I think
2: it's just so sweet and endearing and also kind of sappy and sad. Just all the things that I feel like I am. I feel things (laughs) all the time.
0: Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. I'm with you. Maybe I don't experience it through journey covers, but I definitely experience it through other things. Well, one thing you definitely are brilliant and I can't think Thank you enough for being on the show let's go out on alone in love dr proctor thank you again for being on the show
2: thank you for having me this has been amazing
1: yay yay i look into your eyes
0: All right, so there you have it. Part one of our Mariah Carey three-parter. I want to say thank you to the wonderful Dr. Brittany L. Proctor for being such an incredible guest. And of course to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, PJ Vernetti with his help editing this episode, and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. We will be back next week with part two of this series. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at L O U A E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Merch at PopPantheonPod.com. Patreon at Patreon.com slash PopPantheon. Gorgeous, gorgeous, 1216 at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. And until next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.
1: I guess I'm all alone in love. You.